I next met with Dr. Harold Burstein, who began by discussing a patient from his practice. So this is a 61-year-old who had breast cancer found on a screening mammogram. The tumor was in the right breast, and ultimately she was found to have a 2.1-centimeter moderately differentiated estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor low positive, HER2 negative breast cancer, negative by IHC and by FISH. And she had a sentinel lymph node dissection at the time of her lumpectomy that was found to show one out of four sentinel nodes containing a real focus of invasive carcinoma. The tumor had a lower end key 67 score at 11%. So she's going to get post-surgical radiation therapy, and she's obviously going to get adjuvant endocrine therapy. And really the question here was, should this patient who is a very vigorous 61-year-old who has node-positive stage 2 breast cancer, should she get chemotherapy? And historically, of course, we've given chemotherapy to almost all women who have had node-positive breast cancer. And medical oncologists have gotten very comfortable with the idea of using assays like the Oncotype DX test in the setting of node-negative disease. And the question was, could you extrapolate that into the setting of node-positive breast cancer here? One question that relates to this, you mentioned her key 67 score. When you see a second opinion in somebody who has it, a key 67, do you consider it? Do you not consider it? Do you do it at your own institution? So key 67 is a really interesting marker because, and Kent Osborne, I think, deserves credit for having said this far earlier than anyone else, which was that every study that's ever been done of key 67, it's a very powerful prognostic marker. So in every study that's been done in any given center or any pooled set of data, a low key 67 score is always a better prognostic factor than a high key 67 score. The dilemma has been that there are real concerns about how the assay works because there are variations within a tumor where different regions look to have higher scores than others. There are interoperator variations. One pathologist scores it as a 12% and another scores it as an 18%. And so what's been really challenging has been to compare one institution's score against another to come up with guidelines or standard benchmarks that we would use. So people who do it and lean on it well have had great results with it, and it probably is a very good surrogate for proliferation, which is the key things about breast cancer. So in ER-positive breast cancer, what we've really learned after 10 or 15 years of intensive genetic and genomic evaluation is that it all comes down to ER expression and proliferation. And so key 67 is a very good measure of proliferation. The question is, how reliable is the physical assay? So again, for practical purposes, if a key 67 has been done, do you look at it or do you look to see who did it? Well, I look at it. We don't actually do them ourselves, but I do look at it. And in general, these lower key 67s, especially in the setting of a grade one or two tumor, tend to be the kind of tumors that we might call luminal A or low oncotype score tumors. They tend to be more sensitive to hormone manipulations and therefore to have a lower role for chemotherapy. So I'm curious, when you face this kind of situation and you're considering the possibility of doing a genomic assay, first of all, what do you assess in the patient and in terms of their thoughts about the potential for chemotherapy? And how about this particular lady? 
This lady was a healthy 61-year-old. She'd retired as a school teacher. Her posture was the posture for most healthy, reasonable people, which is, I want treatments that are going to help me do well in the long run. I'm willing to endure a fair amount of discomfort and inconvenience for that. And I don't want treatments that are unnecessary. And, you know, at tumor boards, we often talk about, they say, well, this patient's very chemo-averse. And, I mean, of course they are. Nobody wants chemotherapy. The question is, does chemotherapy make sense in the eyes of the patient based on the potential benefits and the risks of the therapy? The only reason to order an oncotype is to help you decide whether or not to give chemotherapy. So if you're in a situation where you don't want to give chemotherapy, it doesn't make sense to get an oncotype. So people who have small, small tumors or are otherwise frail or simply not going to get chemotherapy, there's no need for the oncotype. And conversely, in patients who obviously need chemotherapy, who have seven centimeter cancers with four positive nodes, you don't need an oncotype. Having said that, the great virtue of the oncotype is that it really often gets the patient and the doctor to the zero point of benefit for chemotherapy. I mean, so you and I have talked about this in, in previous conversations, but when you hold out the possibility that there's a small advantage to chemotherapy, a lot of patients will reach for that because who doesn't want every best possible outcome they could get? And the great thing about the oncotype test as it has been developed, is that it really says that for many women who have low scores, there is zero benefit to chemotherapy. It does not prevent distant metastatic recurrence in comparison to endocrine therapy alone. And that's what the real power of it is. So in distinction to some of the other tools that we've had where you always ended up in this conversation with a patient, well, there might be a 1%, 2 3% benefit from chemo. The Oncotype really allows you to get around that by saying, look, there is no benefit for chemotherapy here, and therefore you don't need it. And also, I mean, we have to consider the unlikely but still possibility of something like leukemia or other secondary effects of the chemotherapy. That's right. And many, especially healthy patients, they will endure the near-term side effects of chemotherapy. And our supportive care with growth factors and antiemetics has gotten better. And while nobody wants to lose their hair, it grows back. And so it really are these very rare but serious side effects, the life-threatening infection, the rare risk of heart damage, the possibility of secondary leukemia, you know, which add up to one, one and a half percent of patients. So if you treat enough patients, you're going to see these rare but serious problems from chemotherapy in the long term. And I think that as much as anything, that's an important flag when you're thinking about tiny benefits of chemotherapy. What about the issue of using it in a patient who has a positive node? What do we know about the predictive value, particularly in terms of benefit of chemotherapy in that population? Of course, it's being studied in, in ongoing research, but what do we know right now? Right, so that takes us back to this case. So here's a healthy postmenopausal woman who has a node that's positive, and she's trying to decide about chemotherapy. Well, what we know is that there's actually a very similar database for Oncotype DX in node positive patients as there is in node negative. The node positive data comes from a trial called SWOG8814, which was led by Kathy Albane. It was a cooperative group study in which postmenopausal women with ER positive, node positive breast cancer were randomized to tamoxifen alone or tamoxifen with CAF chemotherapy. And in retrospective analyses that were done with Oncotype, 
Oncotype was a very good predictor of who got benefit from chemotherapy. Qualitatively, the results were a little different from the node-negative patient situation. First, node-positive patients have a greater risk of recurrence, so the stakes get a little higher. Secondly, in the node-positive patients, there was a pretty clear signal that intermediate score and high-score patients got benefit from chemotherapy. But at the same time, the low-range scores, which were arbitrarily defined as less than 18, showed no significant benefit from chemotherapy. And that was true both for the one to three positive node population and for the four more positive node population, though again, the four more node population had a substantially greater risk of recurrence than the smaller number of affected nodes. So in patients like this who have one or two positive nodes whose tumors otherwise have reasonable, favorable prognostic features, and here we've seen a ER positive, low to intermediate grade, low key 67 score, I actually think the Oncotype test is a very valuable adjunct to the decision-making, and I ordered it for this patient. So we'll hear what happened in a second, but in terms of one positive node, I mean, she's not getting an axillary dissection, I assume. Correct. So she could have more than one positive node. She could, though in this particular case, you know, the surgeon did a generous sentinel node mapping. There were four taken out, three others were negative. I think the probability of her having extensive residual disease in the axilla is low, but that's true. Now, in our discussions over the years, when I've asked you about using other assays in this situation, you and most investigators bring up the fact that the only assay, and this was brought out by the St. Gallen meeting recently again, that has predictive value in terms of chemotherapy or zoncotype. But you are seeing data now with other assays claiming or putting out data to suggest that they can identify patients who have such a low risk of recurrence that even though they can't have specific predictive value in and of itself, if you can get the recurrence rate down to under 5%, for example, the ProSigna assay, Michael Nant presented some work on that that they were able to identify a node-positive population with a very low risk for recurrence. What about other assays and that sort of thinking? So the thinking is absolutely on track, and there's been a lot of work from great investigators around the world looking at either the so-called IHC-4, which is a constellation of semi-quantitative ER, PR, HER2, and KE67, or other molecular diagnostic assays. You mentioned ProSigna, and there are several others in development. And they all seem to be able to identify a substantial fraction of tumors that have a very low risk of recurrence. And there's strong concordance between these various approaches. They generally are about 80 to 85 percent overlapping, at least, in who they figure has a high risk versus a low risk tumor, depending on which particular study or assay you're looking at. So as a prognostic tool, I think those are all lining up. They're all characterizing the same profiling of tumors. Even though they use different genes, they end up with the same cancers for the most part in this one bucket or another. And it is probably the case that such tumors have an excellent prognosis and their behavior in response to chemotherapy would be very similar as the Oncotype DX predicts. So far, the Oncotype DX assay remains the only one that has been evaluated in studies looking at chemotherapy or not, and therefore has that unique ability to really speak to the idea of that zero point of benefit. But again, I think that they're all more the same than they are different. Sort of nuts and bolts, the assay that's used in the U.S. is the Oncotype DX assay, and it's used sporadically around the rest of the world. And there's very little use of these other assays in routine clinical practice around the world. They're much more likely to rely on traditional histopathology of quantitative ER, PR, 
HER2 grade and key 67, and that's what most patients are being evaluated with, for instance, in Europe and other developing countries. So you said that to some extent these different assays are identifying the same patients, and yet I think I've seen some data. I remember there was a paper at San Antonio a couple years ago that suggested maybe they aren't identifying the same patients. They're different. Well, they're pretty similar. So if you draw Venn diagrams and you say, well, who, whose assay figured out the low-risk cancers, there's actually very strong overlap. There are occasional outliers that one assay scores as, say, high risk, which the other one scores as lower risk. But there's actually very strong concordance, especially in the node-negative population, between all of these tests. And there have been a couple of very nice demonstrations of that. So to a first and probably second and maybe even third order analysis, they're all lining up the same way. There are individual cases which are characterized differently. And what's always been a challenge is to know what to make of those specific cases. So what happened with this patient? So this patient did agree that the Oncotype test would be helpful for her decision-making, so we ordered that. It came back with a score of 17, which is a low-risk score. And based on that, we decided not to pursue adjuvant chemotherapy. In the literature, a score of 17 for one to three positive nodes with endocrine therapy alone has a risk of recurrence of about 15% for distant metastatic disease in postmenopausal women. And that was with tamoxifen-based therapy in an older era. And most critically, chemotherapy didn't really shift that curve at all. So she was very comfortable with the idea of not receiving chemotherapy. And so we will be following her on endocrine treatment after her radiotherapy. And, you know, one of the things that people bring up about this node-positive situation is, I guess, has been termed treatment regret, or in this case, non-treatment regret. If the patient is in that small number of patients who develops a relapse, to look back and go, wow, I wish I'd received chemotherapy. But I think what you said earlier, I guess, is what you present to the patient, which is it wouldn't have helped you. That's really a key point. And I've heard some very distinguished breast cancer doctors over the years pitch chemotherapy by saying, well, how would you feel if it came back? Wouldn't you feel terrible if you didn't have chemotherapy? And, you know, of course they would feel terrible, but that isn't the question. The question is, does chemotherapy change your odds? And in this instance, it looks like chemotherapy does not change the odds. So, of course, no one wants the cancer to come back. And I always actually show patients their numerical risk, and I make the point that it's not a zero-risk situation, but it's a situation where the treatment doesn't help. And so that's really the thing that is important to convey. And in my own personal experience with that, people both understand it and they accept the consequences that they won't get chemo, they accept that part happily, and they know there's still some residual risk. So I guess another issue here in terms of node positivity is the data, the trial, the Kathy Albane study that you referred to was just in postmenopausal patients. And I have heard people say, well, if I have a premenopausal patient who has a node positive disease, this data doesn't help. And it's like, are we going to have to do a study on every single subset? What's your response? Well, we've covered most of the subsets. So we've covered premenopausal women who are node negative. 
and we have data for postmenopausal women who are node negative or node positive. So all that's left are the premenopausal node positive patients. So there is a relative data void there. And I think our threshold for treating those women is usually a little lower, and that's still understandable. At the same time, for women who have very small amounts of nodal disease, I think the principles here are probably applicable. The interesting thing about the Albane data is that that study began in 1988. And of course, since then, we have better endocrine treatments, and we also have better chemotherapy treatments. So taxanes are a big step forward in chemo. We've pulled out the HER2-positive patients who would have been in that study. They, of course, now get trastuzumab-based therapy. And we are doing better with endocrine treatments, both with longer durations of therapy and with AIs. So those trends mean that, especially once you pull out the HER2-positives, I actually think you can be pretty confident about the general point of endocrine therapy being adequate. The benefit of taxane-based chemotherapy is real, but it gets very small, again, especially if the tumor is ER-positive and HER2-negative. And, you know, I think you can actually expect a little more from our endocrine treatments these days. So I think the data are applicable. So, you know, I mentioned that the primary target for this particular interview and this program were surgeons, and I thought we could also use this case as a way to quickly update our surgical colleagues on some of the things going on in terms of adjuvant therapy that maybe relate to this case. One, now this lady's not getting chemotherapy, but I'm curious what your current approach is to the potential use of ice caps to prevent alopecia. We saw some more data on that at the recent ASCO meeting. What do we know about using ice caps to prevent alopecia, and do you offer it to your patients? Yeah, so we have not had the physical machinery at Dana-Farber, but I thought the data that came forward from the commercial equipment called a DignaCap was very exciting. Hope Rugo presented those data. So this is a machine which essentially is a mini refrigerator, and it is hooked up to a skull cap that looks like an old-fashioned football helmet. You know, it's sort of like one of those old-fashioned leather football helmets. And essentially, refrigerant circulates through the ice cap and cools the scalp. And in a prospective experience, what they showed was that in women getting taxane-based chemotherapy like TC or TCH or just paclitaxel, that a lot of women, 70% of the women, would retain most of their hair. There's a score for how they measured this. You still have some hair thinning, but a lot of women would retain at least half their hair through a course of adjuvant chemotherapy. And in contrast, the women who didn't use the hat, there were about 15 such patients. They all lost essentially all their hair. This does not apply to anthracycline-based chemotherapy, which is still sufficiently powerful that it knocks out all the hair. So I think it's a really cool idea. It does come with the small side effect. You have to immerse your head in this thing, which is really cold. So for patients who are really, really motivated to avoid alopecia and who are getting taxane but not anthracycline-based chemotherapy, I think it's something to explore. I came away thinking I'd love to have one of those machines to just see what it really looks like and what it does. Yeah, I mean, to me, the photos were really dramatic. I mean, that's what, to me, you know, much more than any chart. Any concerns, you know, about the possibility that in some way it's going to, you know, there are going to be scalp mets or whatever? Yes. I mean, nobody really knows. The hypothetical worry is that, you know, you cause vasoconstriction in the blood vessels in the scalp. And what if that somehow kept the chemotherapy from circulating to the scalp? That's how it presumably works. And if that spared cancer cells, I think that's probably pretty far-fetched. But in fairness, we don't actually know. They said there were no scalp metastases in patients who received the DignaCap, which is good news, but I've been doing this for 18 years, and I've only seen a couple of scalp metastases anyway, so it's not very common. 
So another sort of update issue in adjuvant therapy and maybe would have been considered in a patient like this, we've seen a lot of data over the years, is the question of bisphosphonates in the adjuvant setting. Of course, we know this lady got an AI, incidentally. This lady had the choice of either beginning with tamoxifen or beginning with an AI, and she chose to begin with the AI. So either way, the question of, you know, if she got an AI, you have the question of bone density, but going beyond that, there has been discussion over the years about whether or not using bisphosphonates could prevent metastases. Where are we today, and do you ever offer that to a patient who has normal bone density to try to do that? Yeah, so there have been several studies that have looked at this of late, and the interesting thing is that it's still an open question. The trials that looked at bisphosphonate therapy, and particularly with zoledronic acid as adjuvant therapy, were a bit of a mixed picture. The latest data has suggested that perhaps in postmenopausal women in the very low estrogen environment, that using these drugs might reduce cancer recurrence. But that's been in a subset of patients who participated in the trials. The aggregate overall result from these trials was usually negative, and to date, there's no survival benefit. So there's a meta-analysis of these trials that has been published this summer in The Lancet. It is a practice that as yet has not caught on dramatically amongst U.S. oncologists. There's a little more interest in the U.K. where many of these studies have been done And I think we're still waiting for a clear signal about what should be done. In our routine practice, we are not offering bisphosphonate therapy as a way of preventing the cancer from coming back. We certainly treat many women with osteoporosis or osteopenia with bisphosphonates, especially when they are on AI therapy because the osteopenia is likely to get worse. So you have the distinction of being ahead of the ASCO guideline committee related to adjuvant endocrine therapy. And I'm going to ask you with your next case of the patient who's premenopausal, what your thoughts are about that. But sticking with this postmenopausal patient, I wonder if you could comment very briefly on the issue of the new age. You know, we've been waiting for something new in endocrine therapy in general and metastatic disease. We saw the introduction of Everlimus, and maybe you can comment a little bit on that. But more recently, there's been a lot of excitement about the CDK inhibitors. And again, at the ASCO meeting, we saw some really interesting data on palbociclib. Maybe just a word about how that's affecting practice in the metastatic setting and where you think things might be heading. Would a patient like this, you think five years from now, maybe be getting endocrine therapy plus one of these other agents? Yeah, so, you know, the interesting thing is that ER-positive breast cancer had sort of been a quiet zone of research for a long time, and now all of a sudden it's really hot again, which is great because it's the most common form of breast cancer. So the new advance has been with the so-called CDK4-6 inhibitors. So this is the cyclin-dependent kinases 4 and CDK6, which are enzymes very important for controlling cell cycle regulation. And If you block the function of these enzymes, then you are less likely to have the cell rapidly proliferate and divide. So several companies have products in development in this space. The first to market was palbociclib, and it was approved by the FDA for use in March based on a study where they looked at first-line endocrine therapy for metastatic breast cancer. Patients got the aromatase inhibitor letrozole with or without palbociclib. Palbociclib dramatically improved progression-free survival, and that led to the accelerated approval. Then at ASCO in 2015, we saw a second trial called the Paloma-3 study, which was for patients who already had an AI who were getting fulvestrant, the injectable antiestrogen, again, with or without palbociclib, 
again, a major improvement in progression-free survival. And those data were published in the New England Journal of Medicine this summer. So the expectation is that this class of drugs will be very successful, and palbociclib in particular is now being used in alongside first-line treatment or in patients who've already had first-line treatment for metastatic disease with second- or third-line therapy with either an AI or a full bestrant. The major side effect is neutropenia, which is thought to be in sort of an on-target effect of the drug. So just as this drug prevents cell cycle engagement by the tumor cell, it keeps the maturing neutrophils in the bone marrow from concluding their final cell divisions and maturing into the bone marrow. So you get a transient neutropenia. So the dosing of this drug is three weeks in a row. You can get neutropenic. You then stop the drug for a week, and the neutrophils come forward. And with that, the rate of complications of neutropenia is pretty low. It's not zero, but it's pretty low. Yeah, I mean, we've been, you know, it's interesting. In a prostate cancer, we've been seeing all kinds of things going on in hormonal therapy, and we've been hoping, waiting to see whether exciting things would happen in breast cancer. So I personally, and I think everybody is really excited about this. What about the adjuvant setting? Are there adjuvant trials ongoing? And if so, would you give these kinds of agents, you know, five or 10 years? Yeah, so I think that if the benefits that we're seeing in the metastatic disease in any way carry over to the adjuvant setting, these are gonna be very useful drugs for early stage breast cancer. My Dana-Farber colleague, Erica Mayer, has been wrapping up a feasibility study of palbociclib in the adjuvant setting for high-risk patients, and that's the prelude to studies that will open this fall, which are essentially randomized trials of standard endocrine therapy, plus or minus palbociclib, and those will be global studies, and we're very excited to see those get underway. I guess, you know, there are also trials. I mean, the other agent that's been combined in the metastatic setting with hormones has been everolimus, the mTOR inhibitor. But there you do see mucositis and quality of life issues. There are adjuvant trials. It seems like, and I guess the efficacy is still pretty impressive. I guess there, though, the question is going to be whether or not, you know, patients are going to be able to tolerate it. Yeah, so far, again, without obviously head-to-head comparisons, I would say that the CDK4-6 inhibitors look to be easier on the patient than the mTOR inhibitors. Whether they have different or overlapping efficacies is unknown. As you said, a phase three adjuvant trial of Everolimus in the adjuvant setting for higher risk stage two, stage three breast cancers is completed. So we're going to learn a lot in the next few years about where these pathway drugs that interact with ER pathway signaling are going to fit in earlier stage disease. So let's talk about your second patient, the 47-year-old lady. So she's premenopausal, found a lump in the left breast and sought evaluation. An ultrasound showed a two and a half centimeter breast mass and an ultrasound guided biopsy confirmed an invasive carcinoma, grade three out of three. The tumor was ER positive, but low, 40%, PR negative, and was HER2 positive, three plus by IHC, FISH positive with a ratio of 2.9. On clinical exam, she had a two to three centimeter mass in the upper outer portion of the breast at around the one o'clock position, and the axilla was clinically negative. So I saw her as part of a multidisciplinary evaluation, and her surgical team, her breast surgeon thought that she could undergo a lumpectomy right now, though given the location of the tumor, it was sort of in the upper portion of the upper outer portion. She thought that the cosmetic results and the surgery would just be more easy and the cosmetic results would be better if the tumor shrank in response to neoadjuvant treatment. And because this patient had HER2-positive disease, I was happy to offer neoadjuvant therapy because it allows us to use another drug that we think is really powerful here, which is pertuzumab, the second anti-HER2 antibody, which we give alongside taxane chemotherapy and trastuzumab. 
and that's FDA approved for neoadjuvant treatment. And we see dramatic rates of clinical response and of complete pathologic response with the addition of pertuzumab to chemo and trastuzumab. So this case I thought was interesting because she didn't truly need neoadjuvant therapy to achieve the goal of breast-conserving surgery, but because there was some rationale in the way of improving her cosmetic result and because of the opportunity to offer her pertuzumab in the upfront setting, I thought she was still a good candidate for neoadjuvant therapy. You mentioned the fact that pertuzumab, this monoclonal antibody against HER2 that seems to be so effective in the metastatic setting, is approved in the neoadjuvant, but it's not FDA approved in the adjuvant setting yet. The NCCN and other people have said, well, you still theoretically could use it in the adjuvant setting. When we asked the investigators, it was interesting about it, it was a 50-50 split in terms of whether people are actually doing that, actually using pertuzumab, you know, outside its indication in the adjuvant setting, either with the chemo or even out to a year. And I know you are among the 50% who said no. <laughs> so why is that? Well, so when we use pertuzumab, we use it as part of the neoadjuvant program, which usually is about three or four months of preoperative therapy. And we use that because that's where it's been shown to enhance the rates of complete pathologic response, which led to the FDA approval. There are no data that adjuvant pertuzumab given with trastuzumab by itself or in any other fashion is clinically important. And the NCCN panel that supported that, you know, sort of did so in a in a little footnote on one of their pages. It's not like this is a major recommendation. So we are waiting for data from the so-called affinity trial, which is the major adjuvant trial of pertuzumab, and hopefully that'll be available in another year or two. Meanwhile, we saw a nugget of information from the so-called Neosphere study, which looked at preoperative pertuzumab. In the long-term follow-up, that preoperative exposure actually did seem to yield the best outcomes in terms of not having the cancer come back though the numbers were not statistically significant and they were only small numbers of events. I think people who want to use adjuvant pertuzumab do need to look at some of the literature in the metastatic setting because it's not so clear that just giving pertuzumab by itself or even giving pertuzumab plus trastuzumab is particularly effective if you're not concurrently giving chemotherapy. And so I don't know that there's a real rationale for that maintenance year of treatment as we do give with trastuzumab. So let's get back to this patient because she did have a HER2-positive tumor. How was she treated and what happened? Well, she had a nice response, tolerated the weekly paclitaxel, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab combination quite nicely. But by the end of her surgery, she decided to do a bilateral mastectomy. And I think that her decision is a more and more typical one that we're seeing. One of the paradoxes of neoadjuvant therapy, while its original goal was to facilitate breast-conserving surgery, we're now at a time when many women are choosing mastectomy, and so the impact on the surgical choices is actually really small. Mara Golshan, my colleague at the Brigham, did a presentation at ASCO where they looked at two CLGB trials of preoperative therapy, one for neoadjuvant treatment of triple negative cancers with platinum and the other for neoadjuvant treatment of HER2-positive tumors with various anti-HER2 strategies. And the interesting thing was that, you know, it made a lot less impact on breast conservation than you would have guessed because so many women are choosing mastectomy anyway. And that's a social, cultural, medical trend, which many women just feel more comfortable with. But it does call into question exactly who might really need neoadjuvant therapy and who does not. 
Now, did this lady have residual disease at surgery? Yeah, she had a small amount of residual invasive cancer, nothing in the nodes. So she had what you might call an RCB1, which is, you know, a almost but not quite complete pathologic response. What about hormonal therapy in this lady? She started out premenopausal. What kind of hormonal therapy and the adjuvant setting is she going to get? So she actually experienced chemotherapy-induced amenorrhea, at least transiently. So for the moment, she will get tamoxifen. It is likely at 47, but not guaranteed that she'll have permanent amenorrhea. And so I think the correct choice is tamoxifen, unless you're going to actively suppress her ovarian function. And so she'll embark on that. Maybe you can just briefly comment on the issue of adjuvant endocrine therapy in premenopausal patients. We've seen a number of data sets coming out. You get into that in your guidelines in terms of the question of the role of ovarian suppression, the potential role of AIs, and also for all patients, the duration of therapy. Well, those are the three big questions in management of ER-positive breast cancer. With respect to ovarian suppression, we waited a very long time for the SOFT trial, which came out last year, which was the study of ovarian function suppression in addition to tamoxifen or an AI versus just tamoxifen alone. And the SOFT trial, I think, is really important because it solves the paradox of ovarian suppression. Here was the paradox. The paradox was that in every study that had ever been done, Women with ER-positive breast cancer who experienced chemotherapy-induced amenorrhea did better than women who did not. And at the same time, prospective studies looking at adding ovarian suppression to tamoxifen had failed to show a major benefit, and a meta-analysis done a decade ago was negative. So SOFT really solved that because it turned out to be a story of two different populations of patients. For women who had excellent prognosis breast cancers. And I want to emphasize that these were defined by clinical judgment, looking at quantitative ER, grade, sometimes key 67, but almost always without a molecular assay, because most of this work was done in Europe and they didn't routinely do the Oncotype DX or things like that. In women who had smaller, favorable prognosis breast cancers, outcomes were excellent and ovarian suppression did not help those outcomes. And so that's a lot of women and they don't need ovarian suppression even if they're premenopausal. By contrast, women whose tumors were higher risk, whose tumors had higher grade features, women who were younger, especially less than age 35, and women whose tumors were node positive, almost all those women got chemotherapy, but just by clinical selection criteria. And in those women who got chemotherapy and who remained premenopausal, there was a major benefit for ovarian suppression. In fact, numerically, there was about a 15% reduction in the risk of recurrence, and that is as big as the benefit of adjuvant trastuzumab. So adjuvant trastuzumab, which is the miracle drug in the past decade, it's actually a decade ago this summer, that drug which transformed our thinking about HER2-positive disease, very powerful, the benefit in young women who got ovarian suppression was the same. So I think, as I said, that really solves the paradox. So in young patients who have riskier cancers, who warrant chemotherapy and who remain premenopausal, clear high-level evidence that ovarian suppression is important. And by contrast, in low-risk tumors defined clinically, nowadays defined by molecular assay as well, where the prognosis is very good, they don't warrant chemotherapy, it's hard to see any strong benefit for ovarian suppression in those patients. That leaves a gray zone. We agonize over these on a case-by-case basis. The 41-year-old with a 2.2-centimeter tumor and the oncotype score is 20, and you don't want to give her chemo, but would she benefit? That's the kind of case that's really tough still. 
But for women at the other ends, it really has helped clarify the situation immensely. So in terms of this issue, what to do in five years, maybe you could present your 53-year-old lady because she faced this decision. Yeah, so the other question you raised was the duration of therapy, and there have now been multiple studies suggesting that after five years of tamoxifen, longer durations are helpful, either more tamoxifen or switching to an AI. So the story here was a 53-year-old woman. She'd been diagnosed five years ago with a 1.4-centimeter grade 2 cancer, ERNPR positive, HER2 negative, low oncotype score, negative sentinel nodes. She received five years of tamoxifen. She began that at around age 48. And again, she did not get chemotherapy because she had a low oncotype. Yes, I'm sorry. That's exactly correct. So shortly after she began tamoxifen, she became amenorrheic. She's done fine for five years on tamoxifen, though she has hot flashes and night sweats and diminished libido with the treatment. And so now we're meeting and talking about whether to extend her endocrine therapy for an additional five years, and if so, with which agent. So as I said, there are high-level data that either longer durations of tamoxifen or switching to an AI here are clinically valuable. You have to wait a long time to see those benefits. You have to get another decade of life before you really see the benefits. So a woman whose life expectancy is less than a decade does not need longer durations of anti-estrogen therapy. The other thing is that we are learning about who is at risk for recurrence in years 6 through 10. And stage 1 tumors, especially with favorable biologies, there have been lots of studies looking at Oncotype and ProSigna and another molecular assay called the Breast Cancer Index, are all showing the same thing, which is that low-risk tumors in years 1 through 5 are also low-risk cancers in years 6 through 10. And similarly, stage is a very powerful prognostic feature even after five years. So she has a relatively modest risk of recurrence in years 6 through 10. At the same time, there may be a small advantage for continuing the anti-estrogen therapy here. So what I find is that patients are really good at telling me what they want to do. And we have all kinds of patients in the practice, but you know, there are patients who come in with their calendar and they've been circling the date where they want to stop their anti-estrogen treatment and they say, I'm done. Done, right? And you say, yep, you're done. And there's relatively small benefits and you'd have to have the ongoing side effects. And there are other women who really don't mind taking the medications, either just because they have few side effects or because they just feel so comforted by it. They're very comfortable with the idea of extending that treatment for another five years if there is some benefit. The interesting thing is that some of that benefit in years 6 through 10 is secondary prophylaxis of the opposite breast, which obviously matters a lot to some women, but if you've had bilateral mastectomy, it might not be so germane. In any event, these patients are usually very good at articulating their preferences once they see the trade-offs. They know very well what it's like to be on these anti-estrogen therapies. And in most instances, if the patient has become postmenopausal, I would switch them to an AI. The other option would be to continue tamoxifen, and that is a legitimate option, but but my own guess is that there's some benefit to switching to an AI. Yeah, I've cited your slide many times in interviews and meetings where you have the picture of the calendar with the date circled and then the other picture of the patient who has a tamoxifen T-shirt. This lady you said had hot flashes, night sweats, diminished libido. Where did she fall? Yeah, so she was well aware of the side effects of menopause and anti-estrogen therapies, but she wanted longer durations of treatment. So we'll switch her to an AI and see how it goes. The other point I always make to these patients is that if they have more side effects or if this becomes less comfortable over time, my threshold for stopping is pretty low because especially in the case of a stage one with a favorable prognosis, I think it's hard to think there's a huge benefit here. 
Now, this lady had already had a genomic assay up front, the Oncotype assay. Are there situations where you would do an assay, Oncotype, ProSigna, at five years? One of the things that strikes me is some of these papers that have come out looking at these markers in the five-year situation, the high-risk group has over a 15% chance of relapse, which is pretty significant. Again, the molecular assays have, in general, been very consistent and similar across the studies. Low-risk tumors by genomic score have a lower risk of recurrence in years 1 to 5, and they also have a lower risk of recurrence in years 6 to 10 if you sort of re-zero the scale. Similar results have been seen with multiple different tests. I don't think there's one test which uniquely distinguishes the prognostic features of the tumor for one situation versus another, and there's certainly no test which has been shown to predict which women selectively benefit from extended adjuvant endocrine therapy over time. Having said that, we lean a lot on traditional clinical factors. So node positive, we know are a greater risk for recurrence. Larger tumors are a greater risk for recurrence. Higher grade tumors, greater risk for recurrence. And so those are the patients I'm more likely to recommend extended adjuvant endocrine treatment to. By contrast, smaller, favorable biologies probably get less benefit, though, as I said a moment ago, some of this benefit is secondary prophylaxis, and of course, that extends regardless of the features of the primary tumor. Mostly, I think this is a decision driven by patient preferences. So no CME program for surgeons on breast cancer would be complete without a discussion of DCIS. Maybe you can begin by talking about your 68-year-old lady. So this was a 68-year-old woman, postmenopausal, found to have atypical calcifications on a routine mammogram. She had a wire-localized biopsy that revealed DCIS with intermediate-grade histology and no evidence of comedonecrosis. The lesion was ER positive. The surgical margins were less than a millimeter at multiple areas. She had a re-excision that showed no evidence of DCIS nor of invasive cancer. And the question in a case like this is, should she get endocrine therapy or radiotherapy or both? or neither. And I think we're seeing a lot more dialogue about what to do with these older DCIS cases where the overall prognosis is good, where our treatments can be helpful, but the the natural history is quite favorable. I guess, you know, it is a surgical issue, but I'm curious what's happening at your place in terms of this issue of margins. We've seen some consensus statements coming out, kind of favoring the no ink on margin kind of NSABP approach. This lady, though, had multiple close margins. In general, at your institution, how are you approaching the issue of margins, both in invasive and non-invasive disease? So for invasive disease, it's gotten a lot easier. There are no new data, but there is a new interpretation of lots of old data. And the new interpretation of lots of old data is that no ink on tumor, as Bernie Fisher would have said 25 years ago, is an adequate margin. And so that is our current posture. And this is because radiotherapy is effective, and almost all women are getting some form of adjuvant therapy these days. Obviously, if it's ER positive, they're getting anti-estrogen therapy. If it's HER2 positive, they're getting trastuzumab-based therapy and chemotherapy. And so we are seeing very, very low rates of recurrence in the breast, and those rates are not going to be affected by whether the margin is one millimeter, two millimeters, five millimeters, and so forth. Now, again, this is good guidance. It is not dogma. And so, you know, we're asked about cases where, you know, there are multiple, multiple areas where the tumor is, you know, right up abutting and the surgeon isn't confident that they got a adequate margin and all that. Sure, of course, some people will still require re-excision. But for invasive cancers, no ink on tumor is the operating paradigm once and again now. 
For DCIS, it's not so clear. And remember, DCIS has a different biology. So a tumor is a lump that grows. It grows like an onion. It grows sort of in discrete accretion on top of itself. But DCIS percolates through the ductal channels and does not grow in a sort of continuous path, but can grow discontinuously. And so it's sort of like a root that can kind of go off in its own direction. And so I'm not so sure that the issues about surgical margins are as ironed out in DCIS. There is going to be a consensus meeting this November that Monica Morrow and her colleagues are going to lead, looking at the same retrospective review of margins in DCIS. I think for patients where you're going to get radiotherapy and you might even get adjuvant therapy for DCIS, I think we can be less preoccupied by margins. Remember, a negative margin doesn't mean there's no DCIS or no cancer left over anywhere. It just means that likelihood of there being huge amounts of that is lower. And if they're going to get treated, it probably matters a lot less than we've historically imagined. In this case, there were multiple foci where the DCIS was close. That warrants a re-excision in our current practice and not surprisingly, there was no real evidence of residual disease at that time. You talked about the issue of radiation therapy that's been hotly debated over the years. And we were talking before about oncotype. There also is an oncotype assay in DCIS. What do we know about it? And are there any situations where you utilize it? So, you know, the DCIS oncotype assay is a derivative. They essentially left off the estrogen receptor component because almost all these lesions are ER positive. And that test seems to be pretty good at stratifying patients who are getting treated for DCIS without radiotherapy into intermediate, low, and high-risk groups. The dilemma, in my mind, has been that even the low-risk group comes in at about an 8 to 10% risk of in-breast recurrence. And we know that a woman like this, a 68-year-old with a negative re-excision for intermediate-grade ER-positive DCIS, she's already got no more than a you know, in 5 to 8% risk of in-breast recurrence if you do nothing. And we also know from RTOG trials that if you add radiation, you can drop that risk to about 2 to 3% anyway. So in this instance, I'm not so convinced that a molecular assay helps refine the decision-making. She has a good prognosis. You can make it a smidge better with radiotherapy. If that's all you need to know, that's all you need to know. I have talked to my radiotherapy colleagues, and I know that they're excited by the idea of actually using some science in their day-to-day practice. So they seem to be more enthusiastic about this. And perhaps there are situations of larger areas of DCIS where they would have felt compelled to do radiotherapy, where this can stratify. But the dilemma with oncotype and DCIS is it doesn't get to the zero point. See, that's the beauty of oncotype and invasive disease when making the decision about chemo. It gets you to the, there is no benefit to this treatment point. In DCIS, it gets you to the point of, you have a good prognosis, but we also know that that prognosis would probably still be a smidge better. Whether that's necessary is an interesting question, but it's not the zero point. So final question about this patient, and I don't know exactly when the decision was made about endocrine therapy, but... We at ASCO saw the NSABP B35 data. Richard Margulies started that trial about 100 years ago, it seems. I never thought it was ever going to report. But anastrozole versus tamoxifen in postmenopausal women with DCIS, what did they find? And did that affect your practice at all? What they showed exactly, as you said, is that in a randomized trial comparing anastrozole versus tamoxifen, the rate of in-breast events or cancer events was lower with the aromatase inhibitor. Now, having said that, you, A, had to wait eight years to see this difference. 
B, the difference was less than 2 or 3% numerically. And C, the biggest difference was actually in contralateral prophylaxis. Numerically, there was more of an advantage to the AI in preventing contralateral prophylaxis over tamoxifen than there was for AI versus tamoxifen in the upfront management. And the rates of recurrence here, now these women all got breast-conserving surgery, no ink on tumor, radiotherapy and endocrine treatment. And the rate of recurrence was, I don't have it exactly, but it was like 6 or 7% through eight years to 10 years of follow-up. And uh, of course, no difference in survival. So on the one hand, this is totally consistent with everything we've seen about aromatase inhibitors. They are a smidge better than tamoxifen. At the same time, if you want to give adjuvant endocrine therapy for DCIS, the most important thing is that you find a tolerable regimen. And if the patient prefers TAM or if the patient prefers an AI, you now have very high level evidence that each of these are very effective treatments for lowering the risk of recurrence in DCIS. And it's really a choice based on side effect profile and tolerability. What did this lady do? So this patient was actually very willing to take endocrine therapy, but she really struggled with the radiotherapy question. And for her, the inconvenience of the radiotherapy treatment and the concerns about restricted mobility and some of the other near-term effects of radiotherapy were a real concern. She has an excellent long-term prognosis. In the end, she opted for radiotherapy, and I would say that the majority of our vigorous women in their 60s and 70s are still getting radiotherapy. We know it's a very effective treatment. But it does play into this sense that we are over-treating a lot of DCIS these days, that there are many women who are having these lesions found on mammograms that really would be okay. And the dilemma that persists, that we just don't know exactly who needs the surgical biopsies, who needs the radiotherapy, and what exactly the role for endocrine therapy is on top of that. What is she doing in terms of endocrine therapy? She was actually going to go on tamoxifen. I'm kind of curious where you use, even though, you know, in spite of the fact that it was completely predictable what this trial would show, were you offering AIs for patients with DCAS before then? I was not offering AIs. I thought that in B24, the demonstration that tamoxifen lowered the risk of in-breast events was well-known, and that's been studied for a long time. And for most women, the tricky part was making a decision, do I want to take antiestrogen therapy for five years or not? The flavor of the antiestrogen really wasn't the issue. And if the issues of specific to tamoxifen, which are the 0.5 to 1% risk of blood clot and the 0.5 to 1% risk of uterine cancer, if those were so powerful that they didn't want to do endocrine therapy, then I don't think that was a rationale for doing AIs instead of tamoxifen for DCIS management. In my own experience, I would say that about half the patients I talk to with DCIS, when I discuss endocrine therapy with them, about half will start antiestrogen therapy, and about a quarter will finish. There's a lot of attrition because you know the benefits are really quite modest and mostly relate to in-breast recurrence. But again, are you offering an AI or are you just offering tamoxifen? Oh, no, I would, I would have a full discussion, and I think an AI is a fine choice. 